Hi, and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And today on the program, we have Julia Coffey. Hello, Julia! Hello! Julia Coffey will be taking on the role of Richard II in Shakespeare's Richard II, which opens this June at the Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival and runs through August 26th. Julia was last seen at the Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival when she took over the role of Rosalind in As You Like It, and other credits include work at the primary stages, the Mint Theater, she won a Drama Desk and Drama League nomination, respectively, the Barrington Stage, Studio Theater, Shakespeare Theater of DC, ACT, Guthrie Theater, and the Chicago Shakespeare Theater, just to name a few. So, Julia, you are doing Richard II. Yes. Lucky me. Yeah. How did that all come about? Davis had directed me in a show at the Mint in New York City, and um, we were friends. And I had pitched him a couple of years ago doing a female Hamlet. And he called me and said, "Mm, not Hamlet, but what about a female Richard II? And so I reread the play and absolutely fell in love and remembered how amazing it was. And we started talking about how to do it. And he still made me audition, which I was grateful for because it kind of got me in the zone. And then, yeah, now here we are. And here we are at the Hudson Valley, which is one of our personal faves. We have a long, rich history with Hudson Valley. Oh, it's just beautiful. It's really stunning. It's so much fun, too. Julia, that brings up a, a question for me that I was talking about with some actors the other day. How do you feel about auditions as opposed to getting a phone call and getting the offer cold? <laughs> it changes the process. For uh, how does it, it does. It does. I mean, I listen, all of us love an, a straight offer. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, but... If you get a straight offer, you still show up to the first read of rehearsal going, I could still get fired because they haven't really seen me in this. They haven't heard me in this role yet. And it could just not be the right fit or what their vision is. It adds a layer of insecurity somehow, yeah, doesn't it? And, I mean, I was grateful that he asked me to audition because it gave me a chance to kind of investigate the part for myself and sort of say, well, this is what I would want to do with it. And does this align with your vision of what you want to do with it? And to make sure we were going to be on the same page going forward. And it kind of immediately starts to engage my passion in the role, which I'm grateful for because then I can connect to that and start the process earlier even. I think that's great. I think all directors should do that. They should offer the part and then they should have the audition afterwards. Yeah, it's like, it's basically... (laughs) And so you got it, and then you got it again, or you kept yeah. it, or you didn't yeah, lose that's it. Right, that's right. I kept it. <laughs> <laughs> In my gnashing teeth, and I held tight. Nice. But not exactly your first time working with Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival because you were in As You Like It. I was doing Hedda Gabler down in D.C. and Davis called and said, uh, we're losing our Rosalind. She got a gig uh, to do an off-Broadway play. And can you come in and play our Rosalind for the last month of performances? And I was like, yes. Mm. So I, after finishing Hedda, I, I headed up and... It's nice because the cast had already done all the work, so they just plugged me right in. I already knew the lines, and I didn't miss all of the tech and all of yeah. the stress, <laughs> right. creating the blocking and whatever, and I just I plugged right in. I was like, this is great. After every rehearsal, you get applause from the audience. That's right. <laughs> exactly. That's great. And you were the savior. <laughs> right, yeah. So you got to come in, in uh, under somewhat unusual circumstances, but when you're working at Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival, you're working with 
some vets that have been there a long time. In this show, you're working with Nance Williamson, who's been a guest on The State of Shakespeare before, and, and, you know, Chris Thorne and Mark Bedard. But when you're working as a relative newcomer with these people that have so much history together, what's it what's it like? Is there is there hazing? Are they are they mean no. to you? Is there an initiation <laughs> ceremony? And any there paddling? Is a bit of a hazing, yeah. Kurt is notoriously he he hides as we all exit the tent late at night. He is prone to hide in this one little spot at Boscobel as you're walking towards your car and it's pitch dark. And all of a sudden, I heard pig noises <laughs> coming from <laughs> the darkness, like wild boar noises. And um, I was, of course, in front like the gullible little idiot I was. And, and then all of a sudden he pops out and scared the bejesus out of me. That was the only hazing and it was very fun. So, no, they're so generous on stage. And the first to tell you, you know, how best to kind of manage language in the tent and, and how to sort of best utilize your your energy. And, and I'm always watching how they're playing the diagonals and What's wonderful about Nance and Kurt is they've been there so long, you start to realize that you can actually relax, you know, and that it's actually a more intimate space than you would figure because it's so large in scale. But actually watching them then how relaxed they are, you realize that that it can carry, you know, the smallest gesture can be seen from every seat. So that was the great learning. I'm so glad that I did get it, even just that month of performances up here, because that's been very informative for me going forward with Richard, that I don't have to push, you know, it's it'll take. So there's been a lot, lot, lot lately of women playing some of the lead male roles in Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah it's fantastic. <laughs> and the Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival is referring to this as the female forward 2008 season. Nice. So what do you think about this wave that's going through and your particular involvement with Richard II? I love it. I mean, selfishly, it's an, it's a beautiful part. And I, the fact that I get to play it is, I'm, I love it. <laughs> and I have a lot of male actors who are very jealous <laughs> that I get to play it. You know, I why not? I mean, actors are actors uh, despite gender. and Certainly the reverse has been true for since Shakespeare's time yeah. that men play women's yeah. roles. Yes, I mean, I don't know. I... I I say, why not? I mean, if, if an actor can illuminate a character, why does it matter if, if they're a man or a woman? There you go. And so what is your approach to the role? Are you playing Richard as a man or? Yeah, as a man. Yeah, just text-based always, you know, that's my go-to. And Davis and I did a lot of talking before rehearsals started, you know, rolling around a lot of different ideas, kind of focusing on the otherness of, of Richard. You said focusing on the? Otherness the sort of separateness of Richard, how either physically, but also based on his beliefs, based on his history of when he was pinged at such a young age, that there is something about him that is alone in a den of wolves kind of thing. Of, Very um, much so. And what keeps him separate and uh, in a weird way, isolated from his very own knowledge of himself. Can you help give us a little context? Because I think when uh, some of our listeners listeners hear about Shakespeare's Richard, there's there's a Richard that pops to mind. Yes, is, indeed. You know, a lot, I've had a lot of people go, oh, are you going to wear a hump? No, <laughs> so that's Richard III, the one with, yes. with the hump that people automatically uh, associate with Shakespeare. But this is Richard II. Who is Richard II? Who was Richard II? You want, like, history and stuff? Like yeah, that? sure. <laughs> <laughs> not, not to put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe maybe just the, what's the crux of the play historically? So he's basically, historically, this is the point at which kingship changed hands in England. 
from the Plantagenets to the Lancaster line, which starts the War of the Roses. This is the break in the line that um, forever kind of haunts the next several kings as to whether or not they are actually the rightful king. Well, I'm going to give you a quote that I got from Davis McCallum, your director. (laughs) And he says, the world of Richard II is marked by deep ambivalence, which doesn't mean it lives in the mushy middle ground. It is forcefully pulled in two opposing directions, Richard or Henry, tragedy or history, medieval or modern. On all fronts, the truth is aggressively non-binary. That is a packed sentence. Yes. <laughs> and how does that how does that play out in terms of of the production? And is he trying to make a statement about the current day? I don't. I I am I'm, I'm loath to sort of say that there's some message that we're trying to convey because, quite frankly, I think Shakespeare is purposefully ambivalent in his writing of this play. I mean, there are so many. There are actually quite a lot of Richard II stories around this time that Shakespeare pulled from, and most of them were very disparaging of him as a king. And Shakespeare, I think, purposefully, A, humanizes him, which none of the other sort of stories did, and B, presents an argument that is kind of unwinnable in the context of the drama he lays out. I mean, he presents two sides and he presents two figures, but gives them somewhat of an imbalance. I mean, Richard is humanized in the play and you see more of his personality and his psych and his psychology and less so for Bolingbroke. But I think the point is for the audience to go away going, well, I mean, who should be king? Should it be might over somebody who's not necessarily the best choice, but technically is is the correct king also like in his writing there's a lot of antitheses too which is kind of cool there's a it's a real world of antitheses and opposites well that brings to mind the speech that you've chosen to recite with us today (laughs) and there is some there is some antithesis in the very top of the speech i mean it's basically henry or me or the dark versus light yes exactly and richard has constantly built that he is the sun and Bolingbroke is the knight. And then at the end of this scene, from where this speech lives, his last line is, from Richard's knight to Bolingbroke's fair day. Right. And so in this scene, we, this is the, the start of the switch. To be able to sort of feel that tension throughout the play and when it starts to move. And it's just a beautifully crafted piece of theater. What's, why don't you just give us like just a little background of what exactly is happening right before the speech? So right before the speech, Richard has been away fighting a war in Ireland. And while he's been away, Bolingbroke has gathered his forces and come back from banishment and basically has all of the nobles on his side. And Richard only knows that Bolingbroke has come back and has threatened rebellion. But he he has just landed back on his kingdom soil and uh, has not heard the rest of the news, which is that he is bereft of any army. The Welsh have disappeared for him. And that even York, his uncle, has gone over to Bolingbroke's side. So he still lives in the place of hope, which is why I love this speech, because it is the last speech of hope. And it is a great sort of rallying cry to an army of one. (laughs) (laughs) I love it because it's his one chance to sort of show what his might is, but it is a might built on 
clouds. Right, right. <laughs> Tilting at windmills. Yes, exactly. I would add just one bit of context for clarity yes. here, which would have been obvious to Shakespeare's audience, but maybe not necessarily so obvious to modern audiences, especially modern American audiences. But yes. it's worth pointing out that Richard was fighting the Irish wars and, and Ireland is situated to the west of <laughs> England. Yes. <laughs> and London is situated to the east. So th that's going to become important for the many metaphors that follow. Yes. So this is Julia Coffey, and she is going to be doing Richard II, Act 3, Scene 2, the character of Richard II. Discomfortable cousin. Knowest thou not that when the searching eye of heaven is hid behind the globe that lights the lower world... Then thieves and robbers range abroad unseen in murders and in outrage boldly here. But when from under this terrestrial ball he fires the proud tops of the eastern pines and darts his light through every guilty hole, then murders, treasons, and detested sins, the cloak of night being plucked from off their backs, stand bare and naked, trembling at themselves. So when this thief, this traitor Bullingbrook, who all this while hath reveled in the night, shall see us rising in our throne, the East, his treasons will sit blushing in his face, not able to endure the sight of day, but self-affrighted tremble at his sin. Not all the water in the rough, rude sea can wash the balm off from an anointed king. The breath of worldly men cannot depose the deputy elected by the Lord, for every man that Bullingbrook hath pressed to lift shrewd steel against our golden crown, God, for his Richard, hath in heavenly pay a glorious angel. Then if angels fight, weak men must fall, for heaven still guards the right. Wow, thank you. There you go. Are you disappointed I didn't choose, for God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and... Oh, God, no. Oh, good. <laughs> Everybody's heard that. This is exactly. much more interesting. Exactly, that's what I figured. I was like, oh, let's give them something different. Yeah, I loved it. Now, just, just for our listeners, who are who exactly are you talking to? Who's your discomfortable cousin? O'Merle, who went with me to the Irish Wars, who is trying to basically say, that's great that, you know, God is on our side, but we need to also have <laughs> physical help on our side. Yes, yes. that's a <laughs> practical guy there. God yeah. helps those who help themselves. That's right, that's right. So one of my criticisms of Richard II is that he's a little bit high on himself, a little bit pompous, and a little bit not in touch with the real world. Yeah, that's a fair flaw to find. And so how, how is the actor, I mean, because in this speech he's comparing himself to God. So how did you as the actor, so how do you humanize this person? Well, Shakespeare does it for me. I mean, you have a king who, who drinks the Kool-Aid and believes himself to be the direct link to God and his people. Because he was crowned when he was 10, for God's sake. He humanizes him, I think, because you see him fall. And by falling, you, he's stripped away of his illusions, although he maintains some of them still to the end. And you see him discover that he's actually flesh and blood and come to terms with that and try to, try to find contentment in his own skin versus his gold robes, you know, and is not completely successful but has a glimpse i think of of what it is like to be just a regular person before he dies <laughs> before he's killed in this speech you could actually reverse it right i mean in in a way like you could say that at the the end if angels fight weak men must fall for heaven still guards the right 
could he be the weak man who falls? You mean like, is it prophetic, somewhat prophetic? Yeah, or, yes, or ironic that he's saying this, given yeah, his... Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, he is the weak man that falls because he is weak in many ways, not least of which without actual physical soldiers on his side, which he learns, which he learns in this scene, and then he kind of, he has that knowledge and kind of gives up. I think anyone watching, too, will see... Granted, he's not the best leader, but certainly there is an element that probably any leader or any CEO or any boss or any parent, for that matter, will recognize, which is how do you maintain power? How do you maintain the position of being on top? And when people don't listen to you, when your child doesn't listen to you, how do you keep <laughs> them in line? And you're seeing a leader trying to keep to trying to keep his keep the reins. And um, that's always, I think, interesting to watch. And sort of grabbing in many different directions, but not securing. Yes, yeah. and, and you know, like Fiona, when Fiona Shaw was interviewed about when she played it uh, 10 years ago, she was, you know, she said, any actor, you know, word of advice, the audience is going to hate you for the first half, but then they'll, then they'll love you by the end. So, which is a fun kind of journey to go on. Right, you start feeling empathy for him. Well, you feel empathy for him, and in a weird way, and I think this is an interesting thing for audiences to kind of realize too, but that by falling, he has nothing to lose, and he ends up finding his strength. It's perverse, but during his fall, he actually finds his real leadership qualities, but it's too late to use them. And he's kind of alone in a cell. One of the things that plays with the audience's sympathies as well, or certainly would have done in presumably would have done in Shakespeare's time, is the fact that this play is situated uh, as the first in four plays that deal with Richard's successors, and the subsequent plays being Henry IV, Part One and Two, and Henry V. And Henry V is such a hero. Richard must go in order to make, to make way for this great hero. Yes, and what's cool about it, uh, in, in our talks, early talks, Davis, I was like, Davis, can't we find a 13-year-old kid to be our Hal on the outskirts? Because it'd be kind of cool, to, you know, then you see, like, there's the young Henry V in the background who was there. I mean, in fact, Richard takes Hal with him to Ireland and knights him and, like, treats him very, very well and kindly. And, and that's the other thing, like, this is not just a play about one king, it's about all kings. I mean, it's, it's a kind of a look back, it's a step back and looking at, you know, this... This England, you know, that speech Gaunt has, this this teeming womb of kings and also what is kingship and, and, and the sort of swath of English kings and the hit, like, where you fit in the line of kings. And my great speech about sitting on the ground and telling the sad stories of the death of kings is, you know, it's like a club. And, and fuck, I, I, now I'm the guy who got deposed in that club. You know? <laughs> and, 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 and sort of the disappointment at the failure of not serving the kingship well. But Richard's failure here is really Richard's own failure. It does not ultimately have disastrous consequences for England. In fact, one could, you know, one could say the opposite. Yes. But yet we definitely sympathize with, with Richard in this play. Yeah, and also it starts to make people realize, okay, well, maybe, maybe hereditary kingship is not the best thing. Like Maybe putting a 10-year-old on the throne is not the best thing. <laughs> <laughs> because 30 years later, they're not, like, they, they, they don't really know what they're doing. Although, look at Louis the Fourteenth. I mean, he did fine. Uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> For a while. Up to a point. Hit a rough end but, as yeah. well. And I also think Shakespeare's also playing with the idea of the divine right of kings. Yes, definitely. Because this is the end of it. I mean, this is, and Gaunt says this too. It's like, once you break the seal, you can't 
reseal. Like once we, once you have dispelled the myth that the divine right of kings is a thing and that we all have to adhere to it, once we have sort of broken that, you can't go back to it. So we will no longer, a king can't then say, well, but I have the divine right. That goes back to Davis's quote about medieval versus modern. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's, it's 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 a good thing, but it's also like, well, you no longer have that tool in your tool belt for when you want to try and convince the people to do something. <laughs> <laughs> that that club is gone. <laughs> that magic wand of like, yes, but God told me to is gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, certainly with the casting and with the situation, there are there are obvious resonances with the recent election, and I'm I'm sure that that is something that you've discussed as well as yeah, as yeah. a cast. The, the word Trumpian has often been in our rehearsal. Just you know, sort of the the nature of, of our times right now. But we are not purposefully trying to... Stir you know, the pot. Over, yeah, or overlay any kind of current messaging with this. I mean, we're trying to just do the play, and it's enough. You know, because, listen, an audience is going to sit there. They're living right now, too. So depending on where they sit on the spectrum of politics right now, they're going to have their own thoughts about the state of things. I mean, that's what theater does. So that's the gift we're giving to the audience is some time with their own thoughts and their own imagination as to how this still is resonant today. Yeah, I was I was speaking with a dramaturg the other day who said, I think very succinctly, that the job of the play is, is to open questions for the audience, not to answer them. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, nobody wants to be told what to think. Theater is there to exactly sort of spark your own thoughts and your own questionings. Beautiful. Well, I have one technical question about the speech. What I notice in the speech itself is that the language is really accessible. Oh, very, yeah. The metaphors are, are dense, but, but not, not incomprehensibly so. Right, right. And the whole play is that way. It's very, I mean, it's an early work of his. It's all in verse, and there's a lot of rhyming couplets throughout the play. And it is, like you said, it's it's pretty straightforward speaking, but the images throughout are very poetic and grand, which is, has been really lovely to work on. But as an actor, the first word of the speech is discomfortable. It's <laughs> no, it's not one of those it's not one of those Shakespearean coinages which has endured. <laughs> so, no, that's what's so fun about it is it's kind of this clunky, weird word and that he's making it up on the spot to describe something, you know, to describe his cousin. The word itself makes me feel discomfortable. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, in terms of scansion, it's also fa- fairly regular. It's an early Shakespeare, so we're not he's not jazzing it up yet. No, no. And it's see- interesting, too. I've done Romeo and Juliet, and, there's a, and he apparently wrote Romeo... I think right after this. Right, yes, uh, in the same time, yeah. And there's a lot of phrases that are that were still sort of new in Richard that he then further worked on and made better in Romeo and Juliet, which is kind of fun. It's been fun to be like, oh, that's very similar to this phrase in Romeo and Juliet here and there. It's been interesting. There's a lot of Romeo and Juliet in this. Certainly, I mean, rhyming couplets in a tragedy doesn't, that doesn't happen that often. No, yeah, but it's right for him. It's, it's, it becomes a personality trait of Richard. And those who want to appease him have to also kind of play his game. Oh, I love that, Julia. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a personality trait that, that this is what he likes to do because he's so smart. And he, I mean, he is a smart guy, which is, you know, even worse. Like, you're a smart person who's not a good leader. It's like, like, willful blindness which is definitely accurate in describing richard yeah it becomes a game and it also becomes a way that he in the end kind of soothes himself and and uh, a way to exert power a way to flirt a way to uh, all of that right i just i love that you you, you've turned that into a character trait as opposed to some sort of poetic ending to lines yeah no i think it's 
it's got to be personal. Otherwise, it's just words. Well, this was delightful, Julia. Oh, guys, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for asking me to, to chat this morning. So just for, for our listeners, so it's opening on June 22nd at Hudson Valley and through late August. Till the end of August. Julia Coffey, thank you so much for joining us on The State of Shakespeare. Thank you. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And thank you all out there for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.